This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I argue for the beloved community as a, as a kind of ideal rule that guides our everyday lives and that can create a more healthy rather than toxic communities in our ordinary life. And that doesn't mean that we're going to have this kind of utopia. That's not at all what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that beloved community helps us navigate or guide how we can handle things like both disappointment and grace in our everyday lives. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're delighted to welcome back to the show Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob Goodson. Jacob Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and Brad Elliott Stone is Professor of Philosophy and Associate Dean of the Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Today we're talking about a recent book that they co-authored along with Philip Rudolph Kuhnert called Building Beloved Community in a, Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. Jacob Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone, welcome back to Things Not Seen. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us again. It's always a pleasure. So I want to talk about all the aspects of this book, because once again, as happens every time when you all come onto the show, uh, this is a book that challenged me. It made me think deeply about both the structures of the world that we're currently living in, but also the kind of ideas behind those structures. And so very, very usefully for our discussion, your book breaks out into three parts where you're looking at the wounded world, where you're looking at beloved community, and then you're looking and addressing our current situation here in America. And I'd like to take each of those sections in each of the segments of our conversation today. So in this first segment, I really want to start asking you both questions about this concept of the wounded world and what it means when we're talking about moving towards beloved community. And let me start with you, Professor Stone. What are we talking about when we're talking about, in your view, this notion of the wounded world? 
Well, it's a wounded world. It's kind of a passive statement to me. It's a world that will wound. A world in which choices are made, right? Which in my chapter we call the tragic. That choices we make have consequences. And something always gives. And so choosing one thing over another leads to wounding. And we live in such a world. So not to spoil my overall argument throughout the book, we have to not be idealistic about that, but quite mature and say we're in a world where not everybody gets everything they want. In fact, nobody does. And so you see again and again, super famous, wealthy celebrity commits suicide, for example. And you always say, how could they do that? Because we are in a wounded world. We don't have everything we want, even when we think someone has all the things that we would have wanted. That does not equal that everyone had those things. And so I see it as a world in which choice matters and a world that is limited. And therefore, I'm in a world that will wound. And how do I handle such wounds? Well, if I've heard you correctly, we're living in a world, first of all, that presents us with I'm going to say natural limitations, but we could question whether or not they're natural, but we're presented with limitations. But I'm also hearing you saying that in the very structure of choosing option A or option B, when, you know, you can have your cake or eat it too, to use that old adage, either of those choices is going to present a limitation on the other choice. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that we're both living in a world of limited resources and limitations, but also our actions in the world create limitations for ourselves as well. When I say it that way, have I understood correctly the mechanics of what you're talking about here? Yes. So the price of freedom, I was, I'd rather say freedom versus limitation. Freedom instead of liberta- limitation means that we have choices and we cannot do everything. And therefore, the things that do not happen leave a hole. And the things we do have consequences. So one of the beautiful things is that the choices we make really matter for that reason. Our choices matter because they either create a hole or some consequence. And so we need to overcome this idea that we would be in an ideal world. I do not see the wounded world akin to something like the fallen state of man or something like that. Rather, it's actually the result of our freedom. It's the result of choices we make. And I can make different choices. It won't solve the being wounded part. I would just have different wounds. And so usually when we envy somebody else, for example, it's really, I wish I had your wounds instead of the wounds I have. And then you realize if you spent a day in their life that you wouldn't enjoy those wounds compared to your own. At least I know my wounds. Well, and and Professor Goodson, Jacob Goodson, let me turn to you now and ask if you could give my listeners a bit of an overview of your analysis. When you come to this phrase, the wounded world, what are you looking at and what, how, how are you analyzing that? Yeah, thank you for the question. And I think one of the wonderful things about this particular book, as you're about to hear, is that we have pretty different approaches between the three authorial voices. So my, the first two chapters that I have written for this book, really rely on the work of American philosopher Josiah Royce as offering some insights and some wisdom for these questions. When it comes to the wounded world for Royce, the wounded world is a result of indifference, hatred, and selfishness 
which he labels as all irrational. And it's that irrationality, according to Royce, that leads to particular individuals being wounded. And then Royce actually pinned the phrase cries of the wounded in his book, The Religious Insights into Philosophy. And so we need to look at the individual cries of the wounded, and those cries are the result of the systematic irrationality that continues in our world, according to Royce, because we have habituated hatred, indifference, and selfishness. And so that's the first piece for Royce. And then the second piece is what it means to listen to the cries of the wounded. What I'm trying to do in this chapter in particular is to argue that you really can't consider yourself ethical as a human being if you're not trying to discern and listen to the cries of the wounded. And what I mean by that, David, is that there's this, going back to Aristotle, there's this way of thinking that when it comes to the ethical life, it's simply about being in control of one's own habits and one's own virtues. And as long as you're looking out for yourself, not in an anything goes kind of way, but in in a way of trying to manifest the virtues, then you have qualified for being an ethical and virtuous person. And I think what I've learned from studying American philosophy and particularly the pragmatists throughout my academic career is that while there is a, an important notion of tending to oneself, if you're wanting to be ethical or, or live the ethical life, that you also need to be able to be attentive to the cries of the wounded, attentive to the pain and suffering and oppression that people experience. And so there's kind of two directions in my chapter of trying to understand that phrase of what's the cause of the wounds? And then what does it mean to really become attentive and to discern and listen to the cries of the wounded when it comes to individuals? Now, when I was speaking to Professor Stone just a moment ago, it seemed almost as if living in the world limitation and our own choice creates a natural consequence in a world that sort of ontologically will wound us. What I'm hearing in the cries of the wounded that you're suggesting, however, is more a kind of intentionality. So I have resources I could share. I choose not to share them. And that creates a wound in the other. Now, when I make that kind of distinction, am I understanding some of the difference between the approach that you're taking and Professor Stone is taking? Or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's, I think you may know us better than we know ourselves when you put it that way. I think when I hear Dr. Stone talking the way he does, and this may not be a disagreement, just a difference in emphasis, is that the hatred and difference and selfishness are just the norms of what we have to figure out how to navigate and negotiate. Whereas, as Dr. Stone says in his chapter about my argument, my idealism for better or worse, is that I think the, the, there's a kind of mellorism that I have where we can recognize that indifference, hatred, and selfishness without having to accept it as a kind of norm. And Professor Stone, since Professor Goodson just raised this notion of idealism, you actually do take that on and you counter to that idealism an idea of materialism. And I wonder if you could briefly say for our listeners what that friction is between idealism and materialism as you present it in your chapter. We could almost say that the real difference is the distinction between what is versus what one would wish to be. And so a materialist, and I argue along with Cornel West, who's a key figure in my chapters, in a certain sense against Josiah Royce, which was already mentioned by Dr. Goodson, that 
our idealism gets us in trouble, first of all, because it does not account for the actual present scenario of people. So it's one thing to say, okay, I want to be more attentive to the cries of the wounded. Have you realized that you yourself are actually wounded as well? Or have you decided that there's a particular group of people, for example, for the sake of this example, let's call them the Black people, who are the wounded, but actually have built an entire system out of that, what Cornel West, following Miguel de Unamuno, calls the tragic comic. So that, for example, Black culture is born out of those wounds. Black people, as Lewis Gordon says in his newest book, Fear of a Black Consciousness, says Black people do not get up in the morning, look in the mirror and pick up the banjo and start playing the blues music about being Black today. That's not the Black experience. And so I'm always curious about what cries were over, to use Shannon Sullivan's phrase, I sometimes worry that idealism is a hope to be good white people in a certain way. When really what would approach the cries of woundedness and the way we can find solidarity with those who are wounded is to actually see that we also are wounded. So when we talk about racism, for example, in my chapter on James Baldwin, one of the insights is that we are all wounded in America and race is wounding us. And Baldwin's an anti-realist about race. So if we would get over race, we would... The way we get over race is to realize, actually, it's affecting all of us. And so white people, scandalous sentence, might actually suffer more because of racism, in part because it's the chickens coming back to roost, as Malcolm X says, that choices made. Oh, but I didn't own any slaves. Yes, but your great-grandfather did. And now you're in a pickle because of that choice. You have been wounded by that decision. I wasn't the only one wounded there. And so to be a materialist means to actually grant that ideas matter, choices matter. And there was no grand necessity underneath what got us to being wounded. It's not like black people ontologically or naturalistically are wounded. Different choices could have been made. And there have been ample times in, for example, American history where race could have been different. And choices were made that exacerbated racism, made it harder to overcome. Black culture responded accordingly. And so when people are like, gee, I wish Black people didn't feel like they had to do separate graduations or separate beauty pageants. Well, we didn't have to, but we were not allowed to be in these other things back then. But once we then created the culture, the tragic comic response to that rejection now, just because all of a sudden people are guilty, you know, about George Floyd, a more recent point of consciousness, now all of a sudden Black people are supposed to give up their culture for some idealistic dream. Whereas Black culture actually has responded to the actual material life and causes of its own existence. And so for me, it's really hard from an African-American philosophical point of view to not start materialistically and historically to say these are the results of decisions made. And we're all in it in that sense together. And we can only do that when we grasp the messy, fallible arbitrariness of what has happened. And then laugh, pick up guitars, sing the blues song, but blues songs don't continue to be sad. They become mischievous and happy. And that ability to convert 
pain and the joy, as W.E. Du Bois wonderfully says, is the gift of Black people. Listeners, as you can tell, we are off and running here in this conversation. This is going to be an hour full of rich ideas and the chance to go deep into them. We're going to take a quick break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Jacob Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone, talking about their recent co-authored book with Philip Randolph Cunert called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the program Professor Jacob L. Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone, along with their co-author Philip Rudolph Kuhnert. They have co-authored a book called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. In our first section, we talked about part one of their book, which looked at the question of the wounded world. And now we're going to turn to section two of their book, Building Beloved Community, which is about the main subject of the title, this notion of beloved community. And Professor Jacob Goodson, I wonder if you would kick us off in this conversation by talking about the way that in that chapter you're framing the idea and exploring the idea of beloved community. Yeah, thank you for that question. I do think this is probably the most important section of the book, and the three chapters have very different things to say about what beloved communities look like or what the beloved community looks like. Again, I follow Josiah Royce and find a lot of wisdom in his thinking, in particular, he takes beloved community and turns it into a kind of rule or categorical imperative that says we should always seek the beloved community because that can guide our actions. Another way to put that is we must always sort of bring about the coming of the beloved community. And what is it that we're bringing about? Well, we are bringing about something that has five characteristics. First, that the beloved community embodies universal love. The beloved community serves as an ideal to constantly strive toward. The beloved community offers a modern version of the medieval idea of the kingdom of God. The beloved community requires all people to live by faith, grace, and love. And the beloved community represents the greatest hope possible for humanity. Now, if we seek to strive for this, and in the chapter I say it's something that we'll never actually achieve, but to strive for something I think is good for that pragmatist sense of trying to figure out how we can overcome some of the wounds, if not Again, not all the wounds, but how can we overcome some of the wounds? 
I argue for the beloved community as a, as a kind of ideal rule that guides our everyday lives and that can create a more healthy rather than a toxic communities in our ordinary life. And that doesn't mean that it's, we're going to have this kind of utopia. That's not at all what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that Royce's notion of beloved community helps us navigate or guide how we can handle things like both disappointment and grace in our everyday lives. And in your chapter, you point out not only the thought of Josiah Royce, but you then connect that to the developed thinking on the ground practically of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I wonder if you could briefly make those connections for us. Yeah, so we do know that King studied Josiah Royce when he was at Boston University doing his PhD. And King has a much more theological understanding of the beloved community, even though some people interpret Royce as having a Christian view. I think Royce is trying to offer us a more secular notion of beloved community. But for King, the beloved community is already embodied in significant ways in Christ's disciples and what it means to be the church and particularly the black church for King. And so I do appreciate King's more theologically robust of notion of beloved community. My only addition to King, it's certainly not intended as a critique, is that I think we live in a world in which we need to have a, a both-and approach, a both-Christian approach to beloved community and a secular approach to beloved community, simply because of how our everyday lives are made up of both Christians and non-Christians in most communities of, in, in the American experience. And one thing that I appreciated as you were developing this idealized notion of beloved community was towards the end of that chapter, you brought in a kind of sustained critique from an essay by Joy James. And I wonder if you could quickly just talk to us about how you present your own kind of self-undermining of your own position in the words of Joy James. Yeah, so I love Joy James's essay. Appreciate Dr. Stone for pointing me towards that essay while I was writing this chapter. And it really did change. You're right. It changed the ending, my conclusion of the essay. For Joy James, and I completely agree, you can't talk about the law of the community without talking about the reality of death and despair and how death and despair is often determinative of the communities that we find ourselves in. And so in my own conclusion, I wanted to really make it clear that I was siding with Joy James on that position that in no way, yes, I'm happy with the label of a kind of lowercase I idealist. I'm, I can embrace that. But my idealism also takes into account a significant aspect of how death and despair really do define our kind of everyday lives and define many of our relationships. Well, and Professor Brad Elliott Stone, when we talk about Joy James and the idea of death and despair, she's specifically locating that in black death and despair, African-American death and despair. And that connects in some ways up to a major figure in your chapter on the beloved community, the early thinking and writing of Cornell West. And listeners may recall that very famously, Cornell West always presents publicly in a dark suit, dark tie. And when he's asked about why he always wears the same thing, he says, I'm wearing my funeral suit so that I'm ready for them to bury me whenever it is, whenever my time comes. So help us to build this bridge between the internal critique that Joy James is offering in Jacob Goodson's chapter and the more sustained critique that you take up through Cornell West in your chapter on the beloved community. Yeah, the fastest way to say it is maybe the idealist focuses more on the beloved part and the materialist focuses more on the community part. So it's not an ideal thing like the kingdom of God 
the beloved community is what Black people already practice. And the Black church, of course, was the one of the few places where Black community could gather and be left alone enough to actually implement it. And so when King calls the United States into the beloved community, it is not this idealistic thing akin to the medieval kingdom of God, but rather, as James Baldwin himself would say, the invitation that Black people have given to white people is that they can always become Black people because being Black has nothing to do with your skin color. It has to do with how you're looking at life and how you interact with others. And so in the early Cornell West, in his doctoral dissertation on Marx, he's really clear to free Marxism from this kind of idealism that it has, such that it always looks good in theory but doesn't work in practice. Right to the contrary, Marx realized that you had to have actual community. And in my chapter, I spend a bit of time talking about why ideals can't form communities. And it's because, first of all, it wants a community to exist that doesn't already exist. And I would argue you have to actually start with the communities you already have. Second, you have to deal with the question of solidarity, which is usually solidarity on material conditions, not idealistic agreement. And so when I hear that beloved community, for example, is the new term for the kingdom of God, you have to remember we've already seen the kingdom of God fail when it comes to race relations, for example, when it comes to the life of the poor. So what's the new term going to influence people to do that God couldn't do? And if God couldn't make people love their neighbors, then Josiah Royce definitely isn't going to. And neither is Cornel West, by the way. But of course, Cornel West is already talking about a love that already exists in the universe, a love that Black culture has already cultivated, a tragic comic blues sensibility that allows Black people to recognize each other, have full dignity in the presence of each other. Black people are not ashamed of themselves with each other, as it were. And everyone could be in that community. And King offers that. To the American people. One of my favorite moments in the letter from Birmingham jail, King actually says, if you don't get on board, pastors, with what this Black pastor's doing, the next time we're in racial crisis, it's going to be violence. And yet, when we see that violence erupt now, we're all like, why don't you be more like King and be nonviolent? King warned you that if you didn't do this, this would be the outcome. So once again, still choices being made. Choices yet again to not do this. Richard Rorty, who was one of West's professors and key influences, correctly points out in Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity that for the German tradition being full of these categorical imperatives and idealistic visions, it easily fall under Nazi control, maybe more easily than if they hadn't done all that because you can get wrapped up in an idealism that becomes a kind of mythology that can run things like, in American sense, white nationalism. The sheer myth that runs it, not the actual material realities that run it. And so idealism runs the risk of grabbing people actually out of the actual material truth to cause more harm. And as a result, the idea that someone is Jewish in Nazi Germany overrides more obvious points of solidarity. So you don't even need something like, well, they're a human like I am. They're a mother of children. You know, just basic things. They work in the factory next to me. For a country, you go back to America, for a country that has had Black people in it for 400 years, everyone still seems to act like they're just discovering Black people. 
We've been here for 400 years. So we don't need a new ideal. We need to pay attention to our actual community we're actually in. And then let that community be messy, let it be local, let it be experimental, let it be fallible. Let people have the right to exit community. So not everyone wants a beloved community in that sense. Okay, fine. It can't be imposed upon people. And it has to be an actual project. So for those who are working on racial justice and racial reconciliation, it's a messy, real process. You can't get around it by simply saying, oh, well, we're all children of God. That hasn't worked. That's the thing that people used to try, and it didn't work. Let's be messy with it. Race is messy. It has a history in America. Do we know that history? Will we listen to that history? And will we unite to work on what we could do today? And it might fail. Then what would we try after that? I prefer that notion of beloved community, a deliberate community of people who have shared a particular goal. And in our modern world, we need that kind of more than ever as ideals have failed, but we haven't really replaced it with experimental practice. Instead, what we have is paralysis. And the way we get our paralysis is to get together with people who are trying to do the things you're trying to do and do them. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you both. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're delighted to be welcoming back to the show Professor Jacob L. Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone, along with Philip Rudolph Kuhnert. They've co-written a book called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. Professor Stone, I want to stay with you for just a moment because towards the end of your chapter on Beloved Community, you make a series of statements that I would love for you to elaborate on just briefly. You say, Beloved Community cannot be global and Beloved Community cannot be national. And when we think about inviting America into the Beloved Community, that quotation phrase that you gave to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King a few moments ago, it almost sounded like he was suggesting that Beloved Community could be national. You say no. Tell us why. First of all, there's material differences in different communities throughout any given nation, let alone the globe. So there's one thing to say that, you know, we should all have something like universal human rights, and I'm not automatically against the claim. I see rights talked as a set of decisions about the goals we're trying to accomplish as human beings, but it's not like they come necessarily from on high. The local dimension of the beloved community means that I actually have to start working with my neighbors and my co-workers instead of fleeing, as it were, from my material reality into the realm of ideas or the realm of ideals. Both of those can be problematic. We have to take the world we're in. And having grown up in Kentucky, for example, but now live in Los Angeles, I see two very different worlds. And you couldn't use the L.A. solution in Kentucky. The bad news, unfortunately for me, is I can't use the Kentucky solution here in L.A. My favorite example would be, gee, if we all had to pick tobacco around the same time every year, and if one person had the corn and one person had the eggs and one person had the rhubarb, we would have a little more understanding and racial reconciliation in Los Angeles. I grew up in what clearly would have been the racist South, And race was a reality, but my grandmother had the eggs. And so even in that racist society, people had to interact and work together and live together. And you come to L.A. and you really had real segregation where people really didn't interact 
In the South, black people and white people interacted all the time. That's a very different model. And so it has to be local in the sense that I do need to care about the particulars. And so when I see King talking, this go to the dream speech, he's very specific to highlight all the different geographical regions of America. And all the, you know, so when freedom is ranging from every mountainside, he, he picks all these different mountains. <laughs> and so if you're in Georgia, your mountain is Lookout Mountain. If you're out here in the American West, we're looking at the Rocky Mountains, right? And the curvaceous slopes of California, as he says in the speech. So even as a nation, it's going to have a local flavor. But to be fair, that's always been the United States. America is a nation. It has certain things that it has in common across the nation, but there's a lot of local flavor. And we don't want to lose that local flavor. That's part of the fun of America, actually. In fact, white supremacy was the effort to get rid of all these flavors. Because you get things like the Northwest dialect and a kind of crystallized white culture, which didn't exist until the 20th century. We've had, there's tons of history books on the creation of 20th century whiteness so that people actually gave up being white in different ways to be more unified against the rising collectivity of Black Southerner culture. So what we call now Black culture, for the most part, is Black Southern culture. And you immediately can understand Black culture if you'd really go back to Southern culture. But that was thrown away, or at least thoroughly ridiculed, to create a kind of sophisticated white culture, when actually there'd be more celebration, more things there I say the South could be proud of if it would incorporate actual Southern culture. And there's no way to do actual Southern culture without talking about Black people and white people in the field. Well, and Professor Goodson, let me bring you back into the conversation, because when Professor Stone talks about this kind of radical locality, this kind of regionality, it pushes against what I hear you drawing from Josiah Royce, this idea of universal love, this idea of ideals to be constantly strived towards, and this whole notion of the greatest hope. And so I wonder, as Professor Stone is laying out this radical locality, how you hear someone like Josiah Royce or even your own sort of arguments responding to that pull to the hyper-local. Yeah, this will be fun. So I fully agree with everything Dr. Stone said about the emphasis on locality. And when I use phrases like everyday lives and ordinary life, that's the ontology or the reality that I'm pointing towards. I don't think there has to be a dichotomy, however, between living into the local, enjoying the local, being fully present in the local, and not a but, but an and, also thinking more universally, more globally, dare I say, more cosmopolitan in the Kantian sense, where we appreciate what we have in our everyday lives in the local. And we also look towards seeing how there is oppression and suffering in other parts of America, as well as other parts of the world, that perhaps we cannot change from a top-down or political way, but we can try to discern and become better listeners to those individual cries as well. I don't hear Dr. Stone necessarily shutting down that next possibility, but that's my emphasis is I think that voice gives us a kind of dynamic between how this universal rule of acting as if you're bringing about the beloved community has its deepest impact and its most significant impact in 
the experience of the local in your everyday relationships, in the difficulty of the personal realities that we all face each day. And I would agree, I would go back to what Dr. Stone said at the beginning, which the ideal is in the beloved and the material is in the community and really want to lift both of those up at the same time to have equal weight in terms of how we conceptualize and talk about these questions. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're talking with Professor Jacob L. Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone. Along with their colleague, Philip Rudolph Kunert. they have co-written a book called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Professor Jacob L. Goodson and Professor Brad Elliott Stone. Along with their colleague, Philip Rudolph Kunert, they have co-authored a book called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. The book has three sections talking about the idea of the wounded world and the idea of the beloved community, and a third section, which is dealing with the current situation here in the United States of America. And with that, I want to turn to you, Professor Stone, because at this point, when you come to this chapter talking about our current situation, You introduce something that I found fascinating and I had never thought about before. You introduce the Lithuanian philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, and you use Levinas to interrogate a term that has become ubiquitous now, the idea of white privilege. I wonder if you could briefly walk us through how Levinas helps us rethink the idea of privilege. Yes, I've always found this idea of jouissance in Levinas interesting, and I can't take full credit for the insight. I was watching that wonderful documentary on James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro, where he presents whiteness in one of his writings that's presented in the documentary. While Black people are dealing with civil rights, white people are making beach movies, right? So you had all those beach movies and shindig kind of party, beach party films. That's whiteness in the United States. While Black people are doing all this work and having to deal with the consequences of racism and things, white people are having fun at the beach. Professor Stone, could I quickly just ask, you use this term jouissance, and if I'm hearing you correctly, so while there was actual catastrophic suffering of African-American communities, it was the white communities sort of ignoring that and instead just having this kind of hyper-projected enjoyment on the screen Does that help us to get at the idea of jouissance, or would you say it in a different way? Yes. Jouissance is enjoyment. It has a lot of different kind of psychoanalytic meanings, some of them even sexual, equally so in the French language itself. And in one of my other projects on the role of sexuality in American racism, that's going to come up again in its more sexual sense of jouissance. But this idea that one can pretend to be alone, that the cries of the wounded and the life of others has no bearing on their very being is jouissance. So Levinas, correcting what he thought was a problem in Heidegger, starts with the idea that we are in community together, that I'm always already at the disposal of the other. Now, in some texts, Levinas suggests that it's something like, oh, the other is high above me, and I can never reach the other. 
and other text, the other is so intimately on me, I can never get away from it. And so I joke, it's either the other is too far away and I'll never get to them, or they're so close to me, I can't get away from them. But Trisance is to say, it doesn't matter, I'll just have my life. And I see a similar pattern in all the language, it comes up every so many years, about white privilege, where white people somehow act as if their whiteness has been given to them, and they have no role to play in it, and, and things like, oh, I'll just denounce my privilege. And I hate the word because it suggests that Black people are, for example, non-privileged or underprivileged. That, once again, going back to Lewis Gordon, that somehow Black people wake up in the morning and feel bad about being Black. We don't feel bad about being Black. Black people don't have a problem being Black. And so what is this thing that white people think that they have that black people don't have that somehow gets explained as a benefit? So my original critique of privilege is I just don't see whiteness as a benefit in that sense. And privilege suggests that I have some kind of benefit. If you talk to poor Appalachian white people in Eastern Kentucky, they're not going to really be able to feel what someone in L.A. is calling white privilege. They just don't have it. They're poor like everybody else. Their life isn't any better than anybody else. And so it's a term that really misleads. But even that white person in Eastern Kentucky actually does response. Where they don't think that situation they're in was connected to the American history of race and racism. And it was. Their own poverty is actually a piece of the story of American race and racism. And so it's not privilege I need white people to get over, to check your privilege. Rather, it's to come to terms with the jouissance and realize we have actually always been together, that there's no story of white people in the United States without black people in it. Similarly, the black story always has white people in it. The difference is black people know that. Black people act that. That's why black people talk about white people all the time, because there's no way to talk about being black without talking about white people. But somewhere, even the people who are like, I'm working on my privilege, and I'm going to study more about being white, still never then talk about the role black people play in them being white. And so Levinas comes, has this term that I also like, this resolve that, substitution. That I literally substitute myself for the other. Now, Levinas means this in terms of the Holocaust. He as a survivor, a lot of the rest of his family was killed. He now has to substitute for them. He represents them. He now must seek justice for them. His time, the entire rest of his life, is now for them, not for himself alone. And so part of the beloved community to me would be that we would have to overcome trisance and be in a world of substitution. James Baldwin calls this love. But it's not that idealistic kingdom of God Right, Baldwin one time in an interview just says, no, we've got, maybe get down to just all of us need to have sex together. Not because of some idea of interracial breeding and we'll all be mixed or something, but rather nothing is more intimate. Nothing is more vulnerable than that. And of course, Baldwin recounts his own sexual life, both heterosexual and homosexual, to talk about the ways in which those vulnerabilities can change us. And so through his relationships with white and black lovers, he comes to realize at the end of the day, as people would joke, when you turn off the light, we're human beings. 
And we're all seeking the same kinds of validations. Every time there's a sex scene in a Baldwin novel, he doesn't describe the sex they're having. Rather, he goes into their minds and what are they thinking? What's the internal dialogue while they're having sex? And you realize, oh, this is the height of their humanity. And so Baldwin's love, I quite love. Insofar as it's real, it's material, it's corporal. I actually have to substitute with the other, exchange fluids, if you will, versus this worry to keep pure from contamination that defines whiteness. The problem is there's never been such purity. There's never been such non-contamination. As Baldwin points out, the world was never white. It is not currently white, and it will never be white again. But somehow white people in America have a dream of a mythical Europe that had no racial diversity, a mythical, you know, the, the, the rise of medieval studies and classics amongst white supremacists. No, those were actually more multicultural, multi-ethnic than your current situation. So we've actually made choices since the medieval world to be less in community with each other. Now, what is that? And that we wouldn't call privilege. It seems like decline, detriment, problem. Well, and this is a good place to bring you into the conversation again, Professor Jacob Goodson, because you actually, in your response chapter to Professor Stone, you quote a section where he's looking at Levinas at length, and then you begin to read that section through an essay by Immanuel Kant called What is Enlightenment? And part of your conclusion from that is that when we look at the kind of entrenched racism, if we use the lens of Immanuel Kant to analyze the kind of ignorant jouissance that Professor Stone is talking about, it's a kind of habituated immaturity. Now, these are my words, not yours. I want to make sure that I've got the moves right. First of all, as I, as I lay this out to you, does it sound like the argument that you were making? And if so, could you expand on it a little bit? What are we meaning here when we're talking about this kind of habituated immaturity? Yes, yes, yes. You got it exactly right. So I thought that perhaps the biggest risk that we took in this book or in these two chapters as you pointed out, the phrase white privilege is ubiquitous and has become a kind of social norm of how at least the educated talk about racism in this country. And both of us challenged that particular phrase. And from a, a pragmatist perspective, both of us conclude it's run its course. It's no longer useful. I argue that white ignorance is a better phrase to use if you're trying to get or capture the racial dynamics in the 21st century in our current situation. And then I also argue, as you're suggesting, I think what has happened within the U.S. in terms of race relations is that that white ignorance turns into white resentment. And I don't think that it's a white resentment that is fueled by actual relationships between white and black people. I think it's a white resentment fueled by this kind of illusion that is created because of the white ignorance of what white people think is going to happen in terms of the future of race relations. And so I do think that Kant, even though still sticking with my idealist <laughs> canon here, I do think Kant offers us a kind of language, and I like the way that you framed it, for really digging deep into how racism isn't only a form of hatred, but a form of immaturity. And that what we've done 
I think in the past several years is that we've allowed this immaturity to go unchecked. And as Dr. Stone has said, instead of talking about the immaturity or the enjoyment or the, or William James's word for what Dr. Stone's arguing is the blindness that we've, that white people have put on, right? We have neglected to see that it's our own ignorance that forms the hellishness that's created in a racist society. And Baldwin points out, and it's one of my favorite things Baldwin ever wrote, black people know that we're all in hell together. The only, the difference is that white people just don't know that we're in hell together. And I really play with that, with that insight from Baldwin. But yeah, this, this notion of resentment as a kind of intellectual immaturity, I think is what I'm really trying to get at in my chapter and to reframe how the phrase white privilege is no longer useful. We really need to think about is how whiteness has become a kind of justification for indifference, hatred, but ultimately, I think, intellectual immaturity. Well, and I want to stay with this idea of immaturity just for a moment because I fear that our listeners may mishear that. Okay. So if I can quickly make a, a, just a brief summary of what Kant is doing in the essay, What is Enlightenment?, He's basically saying up to this point, we've had our institutions like the church or the state do our thinking for us. Yes. And part of what he challenges his readers to do, and he uses a phrase, sapere aude, or dare to know. And he's inviting, do your own reflection, do your own sort of examination of things and plant your flag as a result of those deep examinations. Now, when I say it that way, it's going to now frame immaturity The people who are the immature that you're talking about are the ones who have failed to do adequate examinations of what America really is and has been. When I say it that way, does that sound right to you or would you say it in a different way? That's exactly right. And then I would also add to that, not just America as a nation, but also has failed to reflect actively as well as adequately on their actual personal relationships. Right. And so... My guess is that most people who have a kind of ideology of white supremacy also have people in their lives who are African-American or black, and they're, they have failed to acknowledge of how their actual interactions with people who are other than them, people who look different from them, actually impact what the ideology is that they're carrying around. And so they stick with this ideology despite the facts or despite their experiences. And so, yeah, I think for me, what I'm trying to, it's almost like a altar call for my, my own Southern Baptist tradition growing up. I'm really wanting to invite my white brothers and sisters who may have this notion of white supremacy that they carry around or, or may be a, a kind of casual racist. I want to invite them to think about the ways in which their everyday experiences and everyday reality of how our nation actually works ought to be something that invites them to have courage to think for themselves, to go back to Kant's language. And then I end my chapter with a story about how I saw this weird dynamic in junior high of people who were white students who were explicitly and actively racist in the cafeteria trying to force segregation. And then on the football field, the exact same students were the ones high-fiving and slapping in the butts. Every player, not just white players. And for me, that dynamic is another kind of invitation to think for yourself, to have courage, to think about 
not what we've inherited in terms of our institutions and systems and what's expected of us. I, I agree that racism's always been with us. And I think it's a mistake to say that it's made a comeback with Trumpism. But I do think one thing that Trumpism has brought out, it's reinvigorated kind of not thinking for yourself part of my argument. And so I would like to have those interactions in the football field be more of an imitation for thought, at least back 30 years ago, for thought of what was going on in the cafeteria. There's so much that we can dig into in this wonderful book. We've only begun to scratch the surface, and I want to point out to listeners that there's an entire third voice who is a part of the book that hasn't yet been a part of this conversation, your colleague, Philip Rudolph Kuhnert. We're coming close to our time, and so as a way of leaving this conversation with some closure, I want to ask both of you in turn, now that this project is complete and it's out in the world and you've begun having conversations about the project instead of conversations towards the project, how have you noticed that you have been changed and shaped by this thinking together? And so, Dr. Goodson, I'll start with you. How have you been changed and shaped by your work on this three-voice project? Wow, what an excellent question. I think my instinctual answer to that is that, as I've already said, I like the three very distinct voices in this book. And although I will keep writing books where I'm a single author, I have realized very much that there is so much more joy and so much more happiness and even a kind of stronger sense of success in a book like this one because of that trialogue going on, not a monologue, not a dialogue, but in this case, a trialogue where we all felt very comfortable in not only expressing our own positions and views, but also using different methodologies in how we wrote. Reverend Keener talks about that in the opening salvo, about how it was important. He felt that it was important for Dr. Stone and I that, that he wrote in a more non-academic way, because Stone and I are writing in a more academic way. And so I would say that my takeaway is to find and look for other opportunities to produce books that not only embrace, but actually celebrate how we can have different methodologies and different perspectives and different ways of thinking on such serious and important questions. And then I would close out by saying I, I also enjoyed the kind of playful banter that Dr. Stone and I embraced more in this book than we did in our first book. And it's really come out in this conversation today is I would only say that I think readers can expect much more playful banter from us, from the two of us in the future. And Professor Stone, I would ask you the same question. As you're now looking back on this completed project, what are you taking away and how has it helped to shape your thinking? Well, in concert with Dr. Goodson's comment, I take it that this book is itself the site, a local site, of a material beloved community. We decided we would write this book together. It's literally what binds the three of us even though Jacob and Phil already had a connection with each other. And I only had a passing connection with Kunert. But boy, I got to know him better writing this book. Not just his ideas, but the person. And we came together for something very concrete. So we weren't solving world peace. We were writing a book during a pandemic. We connected each week talk about where we were and what our ideas were and sharing ideas with each other. It is its own community. And in a society where, especially in the academy, and you've heard us mention this before, the academy loves to isolate people into their own intellectual silos. The monograph is the standard. The challenge we've thrown 
And of course, easier for us to throw it because we're already sufficiently successful in, in our academic career is to say, what's so great about a moniker versus the conversation? Instead of proclaiming on high what the reader ought to believe, go ahead and decide whether you're a materialist or an idealist. You can side with me. You can side with Goodson. You can write us and tell us who you side with. <laughs> and then we'll bring you into the conversation as well. And I really like that dimension. It allows the Academy, and as Kunert mentions, it allows the Academy to actually talk to people out there in the grassroots and ministers who are out there trying to build their communities and their churches and faith communities. And so we need to have more of these kinds of conversations. And I think this book tries to exemplify, like the book that Jacob and I wrote earlier, try to exemplify a way of doing philosophy that will be more fruitful than what we're currently seeing. Well, Professor Brad Elliott Stone and Professor Jacob L. Goodson, it is always such a joy to have you on the program. I am always challenged and delighted by the books that you write, and the conversations that result from those books are eminently satisfying to me, and I know they are to my listeners as well. Thank you so much, and also thank you to your colleague, Reverend Philip Rudolph Kunert, for writing this book, Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. Thank you for the time that it took and the effort that it took, but thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, and I'm grateful for this podcast that loves to think through the issues of the day. Yes, thank you, David. You're such a wonderful interviewer. It's always a blessing to be with you. We've been speaking today with Jacob L. Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. Jacob L. Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, and Brad Elliott Stone is Professor of Philosophy and Associate Dean in the Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Today, we've been talking about a book that they co-authored along with their colleague, Reverend Philip Rudolph Kunert, called Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>